0: Section Twelve of Roman History: The Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter Five: Nero, A.D. 54 to 68, Part Two. The ministers of Nero, Burrus and Seneca, must share the infamy of this unnatural deed. They had already tarnished their good name by mean compliance. To save the power that was slipping from their grasp, they had closed their eyes to Nero's vices. They had tried even to cloak his youthful passion for a freedwoman by a paltry subterfuge. They had held their peace when Britannicus was poisoned, and stooped even to share the bounties that were showered at the time upon the courtier's and now they sunk so low in good men's eyes as to defend the deed from the thought of which even Nero at first shrunk aghast. Burrus, we read, sent officers of the Praetorian Guard to announce the soldier's joy that their sovereign was safe forever from his mother's plots. Seneca's hand drew up the dispatches to the Senate, in which the murdered woman was charged with treasonable designs against the emperor's life— and all the worst horrors of the days of Claudius were raked up to cover her memory with shame. The Senate, too, was worthy of its prince and voted solemn thanksgivings for his safety, while Thrasia alone protested by his silence and walked out of the house at last, when he could brook their flattery no longer. Even distant cities found an excuse for mean servility. One deputation came to beg Nero in the name of the provincials, to bear his heavy grief with patience. The emperor came back to Rome to find the city decked out in festive guise to greet him like a conquering hero. So, rid at length of all fear of rivalry or moral restraints from his advisers, he gave free vent to his desires. Music and song, the circus and the theater had been the passion of his childhood, and they were now to be the chief object of his life. He shared the tastes of the populace of Rome and catered for them with imperial grandeur. No cost or care was spared to make the spectacles imposing and worthy of the master of the world. The old national prejudice had looked on the actor's trade as almost infamous for free-born Romans, but Nero drove upon the stage citizens of rank, knights and senators of ancient lineage, and made them play and act and dance before the people. The historian Dion Cassius rises from his sober prose almost to eloquence when he describes the descendants of the conquered races pointing the finger at the sons of the great families from which their victors sprung, the Greeks asking with surprise and scorn if that was indeed Mummius, the Spaniards marveling to see a Scipio, the Macedonians and Aemilius before them. At last, as if it were to cover their disgrace, or as many thought to share it, Nero appeared himself in public, and sang, and played, and acted for the prize, and sought the plaudits of the crowd. He did not take it up as the mere pastime of an idle day, but practiced and studied in real earnest, showed feverish jealousy of rival actors, and humbly bowed before the judges as if the contest were a real one. No one might leave the theater while he played. Vespasian was seen to nod and sunk at once in his good graces. Five thousand sturdy youths were trained to sit in companies among the audience and give the signal for applause. Not content with such display at Rome, he started even in the provinces. The Greeks were the great connoisseurs of all the fine arts. In their towns were glorious prizes to be won and Greece alone was worthy of his voice and talents. Greece was worthy also of her ruler. Nowhere was adulation more refined. Nowhere did men flatter with more subtle tact, the pride and vanity of the artist prince. We cannot doubt that Nero had a genuine love of art. It may seem as if he lived to justify the modern fancy that art has a sphere and canons of its own, and may be quite divorced from moral laws. But indeed, the art of Nero and his times was bad, and that because it was not moral. It set at naught the eternal laws of truth and simplicity, of temperance and order. In poetry and music, it was full of conceits and affectations, straining after the fantastic. In plastic art, size was thought of more than beauty of proportion, and men aimed at the vast and grandiose in enormous theatres and colossal statues. In place of the delicate refinement of Greek tastes, its drama sought for coarse material effects. It did not try, by flight of fancy, to stir the nobler feelings of the heart, but relied on the sensuous pageantry and carnal horrors to goad and sate the morbid taste for what was coarse, ferocious, and obscene. Nero's life as emperor was one long series of stage effects, of which the leading feature was a feverish extravagance. His return from the art tour in Greece outdid all the triumphal processions of the past. Thousands of carriages were needed for his baggage, his sumpter mules were shot with silver, and all the towns he passed upon his way received him through a breach made in their walls. For such he heard was the sign of honor with which their citizens were wont to welcome the Olympian victors of old days." The public works which he designed were more to feed his pride than serve the public. He wanted, like another Xerxes, to cut a canal through the Corinthian isthmus, thought of making vast lakes to be supplied from the hot springs of Baiae, and schemed great works by which the sea might be brought almost to the walls of Rome. But it was only by his buildings that he left enduring traces, and to this the great disaster of his times gave an unlooked-for impulse. Some little shops in the low grounds near the circus took fire by chance. The flames spread fast through the narrow streets and crowded alleys of the quarter, and soon began to climb up the higher ground to the statelier houses of the wealthy. Almost a week, the fire was burning, and of the fourteen wards of the city, only four escaped unharmed. Nero was at Antium when the startling news arrived, and he reached Rome too late to save his palace he threw his gardens open to the homeless poor, lowered at once the price of corn, and had booths raised in haste to shelter them. He did not lack sympathy for the masses of the city whose tastes he shared and catered for. And yet the story spread that the horrors of the blazing city caught his excited fancy, that he saw in it a scene worthy of an emperor to act in, and sung the story of the fall of Troy among the crashing ruins and the fury of the flames even wilder fancies spread among the people. Men whispered that his servants had been seen with lighted torches in their hands, as they were hurrying to and fro to spread the fire. For Nero had been heard to wish that the old Rome of crooked streets and crowded lanes might be now swept clean away, that he might rebuild it on a scale of royal grandeur. Certainly he claimed for himself the lion's share of the space that the flames had cleared, the palace to which the Palatine Hill had given a name now took a wider range and spread to the Esquiline including in its vast circuit long lines of porticos lakes woods and parks while the buildings were so lavishly adorned with every art as to deserve the name of the golden house which the people's fancy gave to them In its vestibule stood the colossal figure of the emperor 120 feet in height which afterwards gave its name to the Colosseum. From it stretched porticos a mile in length, supported on triple ranges of marble pillars, leading to the lake, round which was built a mimic town, opening out into parks stocked with wild animals of every sort. The halls were lined with gold and precious stones. The banqueting rooms were fitted with revolving roofs of ivory, perforated to scatter flowers and perfumes on the guests, while shifting tables seemed to vanish of themselves and reappear charged with richest viands. There were baths, too, to suit all tastes, some supplied with the waters of the sea, some filled with sulfurous streams that had their sources miles away. Thousands of the choicest works of art of Greece and Asia had been destroyed, but their place was taken by the paintings and the statues brought from every quarter of the empire nero sent special agents to ransack the cities for art treasures and many a town among the isles of greece mourned in after days the visit that had despoiled it of some priceless treasure when all was done and the emperor surveyed the work even he was satisfied and he cried now at last i feel that i am lodged as a man should be It was in halls like these that the privileged few gathered round their lord when he returned from the grave business of the circus and the stage, to indulge in the pleasures of the table. Otho the profligate dandy who had been complacent enough to lend his wife to Nero, Tigellinus' prefect of the guards, ready to pander to his master's worst caprices— Vitinius, the hunchback who had left his cobbler's bench and pushed his fortunes in the palace by his scurrilous jests and reckless attacks on honest men, Sporus, the poor eunuch, and Pythagoras, the freedman, both degraded by the mockery of marriage with the wanton prince, these and many another whose names have not been gibbeted in history, left their memories of infamy in that house of gold. The mood of the citizens, meanwhile, was dark and lowering as they brooded over their disasters, and Nero looked to find some victims to fill their thoughts or turn their suspicion from himself. The Christians were the scapegoats chosen, confused in the popular fancy with the Jews, whose bigotry and turbulence had made them hated, looked upon askance by Roman rulers as members of secret clubs and possible conspirators. Disliked probably by those who knew them best for their unsocial habits or their tirades against the fashions of the times, the Christians were sacrificed alike to policy and hatred. They deserved their fate, says Tacitus, not indeed because they were guilty of the fire, but from their hatred of mankind. There was a refinement of cruelty in their doom. Some were covered with the skins of beasts, and fierce dogs were let loose to worry them. Others were tied to stakes and smeared with tar, and then at nightfall, one after another, they were set on fire, that their burning bodies might light up Nero's gardens, while the crowds made merry with good cheer, and the emperor looked curiously on as at the play. No wonder that in the pages even of the heathen writers we hear something like a cry of horror, and that in the Christian literature we may trace the lurid colors of such scenes in the figures of Antichrist, And in the visions of the coming judgment. But Nero did not often waste his thoughts and ingenuity on such poor prey as the artisans and freedmen of the Christian churches. His victims were commonly of higher rank, and the nearer to him, the nearer they seemed to death. His aunt followed his mother to the grave, and her tender words to him as she lay upon her deathbed were rewarded by a message to her doctor to be prompt and close her pains. Octavia was soon divorced and killed on a charge of faithlessness, which was so carelessly contrived as to shock men by its very wantonness of power. Poppaea, her successor, was dearly loved, and yet he killed her in a fit of passion with a hasty kick. He soon wearied of the grave face of Burrus, who read in his coolness the omen of a speedy death. Before long he grew sick and felt that he was poisoned he pointed to the blood that he spat up as the signs of princely gratitude, would not see Nero when he called to ask him how he felt, but said only, Well, and turned his face away and died. Seneca was longer spared, but he too felt that his time must come. He held himself aloof from court, tried to give up all his wealth and honors, to live austerely and by the lessons of philosophy to make himself strong and self-contained, or to be director of the consciences of those who needed help and comfort. But with a prince like Nero, even students were not safe, and philosophy itself was dangerous ground. The noblest minds at Rome were at this time mainly Stoics, and among the long line of Nero's victims there were many who were in some sense martyrs to the Stoic creed. They were not Republicans, though they have sometimes passed for such in later history. They were not disloyal, though they were looked at with disfavor. They were ready to serve the ruling powers either in the Senate or the camp. There was a largeness even in their social views as citizens of the world that would seem to fit them markedly for carrying out the leveling spirit of the imperial policy. Nevertheless, they were regarded with jealousy and mistrust, nor is the reason for it far to seek. Stoicism, in passing from the schools of Greece Had ceased to be an abstract theory with interest only for the curious mind that loved the subtleties of paradox. It was a standard of duty for the Romans and a creed to live and die for. The resolute spirit and the hard outlines of its doctrines had a fascination for the higher type of Roman mind. To live up to the ideal of a noble life in which reason should rule and virtue be its own reward, to care very much for a good conscience for personal dignity and freedom, and to think slightingly of short-lived goods over which the will has no control? Here was a rule that was not without a certain grandeur, however wanting it might be at times in tenderness and sympathy. But such high teaching was distasteful to the sensualist and tyrant. Its tone rebuked his follies and his vices. It set up a higher standard than the will of Caesar, and was too marked a contrast to the servile flattery of the times, it was not the spiritual quixotism of a few which might be safely disregarded, but men flocked to it on every side for lessons of comfort and of hardihood in evil days. Weak women turned to it to give them strength, as Aria, in the days of Claudius, had shown her husband how to die when she handed him the dagger that had pierced her with the words, "'See, Petus, it does not hurt.'" Some spread the doctrines with a sort of apostolic fervor, and may well have said at times uncourtly things of the vices in high places, like the Puritan preachers of our own land. Some again mistook bluntness of speech for love of truth, like Cornutus, who, when someone pressed Nero to write a work in some four hundred books, remarked that no one then would read them. It was true, Chrysippus wrote as many, but they were of some use to mankind." others influencing the world of fashion in quiet intercourse and friendly letters showed the young how to live in times of danger, or when the fatal message came stood by and calmed the pains of death, like the father confessors of the church. Of the great Stoics of the time, there was no more commanding figure than that of Thrasiapetus. He had none of the hard austerity of a cato, nor the one-sided vehemence of a social reformer, He was fond even of the play, and mixed gaily in the social circles of the city, would not blame even vice severely for fear of losing sight of charity to men. In the Senate he was discreet and calm, even when he disliked what was done, tempered his blame with words of praise, spoke of Nero as an eminent prince, and voted commonly with his colleagues, though he did not stoop to mean compliance. Sometimes, indeed, he protested by his silence, as when he rose and left the Senate House rather than hear the apology of Nero for the murder of his mother, and when he declined to come and join the vote for the apotheosis of Poppaea. At last, when the evils seemed too strong for cure, he would take no part in public actions. For the last three years of his life he would not sit in his place among the senators, nor take the yearly vow of loyalty, nor offer prayer or sacrifice for Caesar. The rebuke of his silence was a marked one, for the world, watching his bearing, turned even to the official journals to see what Thrasia had not done, and to put their construction on his absence. The calm dignity of his demeanor seems to have awed even Nero for a while, but at last the emperor, wearied of his quiet protest. The fatal order found him in his garden, surrounded by a circle of his kinsmen and choice spirits, with whom he tranquilly conversed upon high themes. Like another Socrates, he heard his doom with cheerfulness and passed away without a bitter word. Seneca, too, found consolation, but not safety in the Stoic doctrines. He had long retired from the active world, and shunned the emperor's jealous eye. He sought in philosophy the lessons of a lofty self-denial, and was spending the last years of his life in studying how to die the rash conspiracy of a few of his acquaintance, in which he took no part himself, was the excuse, though not the motive for his murder. The sentence found him with his young wife and intimates, prepared for but not courting death. Denied the pleasure of leaving them by will the last tokens of affection, he told his friends that he could bequeath them only the pattern of an honest life, and gently reproved the weakness of their grief. His veins were opened, but he talked on still while life was slowly ebbing and was calm through all the agony of a lingering death. 65 A.D. End of Section 12